Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, Hello and welcome to the Hopcast Book Show, episode number 108. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following... He rattles his microphone. Four <laughs> genres. Uh, thrillers. Mysteries. Suspense. And crime. Well done. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to uh, get that right. Welcome to the show. And uh, we ought to mention who our guest is uh, later on in the programme. So our guest this week is a lovely lady called Julie Anderson. Julie Anderson speaks to us from Clapham in South London, uh, which, as we discover, is an amazing hotbed of current and past literary talent, including her own. But she runs Clapham Writers and their festival, which is held on October the 14th, as she will drum into us <laughs> a little later with some fabulous guests. Yeah, so it's nice amazing. to speak to another fa- festival organiser and and, um, and reflect on the health of the festival market in the UK. And the enthusiasm of the festival organisers. Absolutely. Totally. Uh, but let's get into news. And I have to say this week, it's, it's one I've been waiting to, to talk about because in the middle of this week, earlier this week, um, there was a blog post from uh, an American uh, gentleman who pointed out that there is a, a clause within the contracts that we've been signing up with Findaway Voices. Now, Findaway Voices, based in Ohio, recently bought out by Spotify, are distributors of audio books. And we have distributed no fewer than 11 Hobeck audio, but actually 12, no, 12. Say, yeah, it's, you, yeah. it's 12 audiobook productions that we've put through there. And I've also worked for them as a narrator separately. Anyway, within their contracts, uh, which uh, we didn't spot, right at the very back end, is a provision which gives them the permission, allegedly, to use the productions that go through Fundaway Voices, farm them off to Apple, who have been developing, as we've mentioned before on the show, AI narration. So essentially, unbeknownst to almost everybody, even though it's in the contract, almost everybody, they have been basically using productions, but more importantly, narrators' voices for AI learning, to teach machine learning how to narrate and put those same people potentially out of jobs. So it has caused a huge ruckus. I'm extremely annoyed by it. He is. I am absolutely apoplectic about it, to be perfectly honest. And um, I wrote to them under the terms of the contract and withdrew permission for all the voices that we have used. That's Robert Dawes, Judy Dakin, uh, E.B. Morgan, and Leanne Walker, uh, and myself, and have 
demanded that all of our voices are withdrawn from that program. Yes. I feel very strongly about this. Yeah, and um, you replied, sorry, they replied with just a um, acknowledgement. It wasn't, there was nothing. There was nothing by further explanation. It has been sat in that contract for two years. Now, you would argue that perhaps we should have looked at it closer. Yeah, we should have done. And, you know, buy a BOR and all that sort of thing. We should have looked at it closer. However, it has caught everybody in the indie community off guard. And a lot of narrators are very, very upset about this. And um, I think that, you know, find a way's approach is, yeah, okay, they have withdrawn those voices from the program. But who knows what Apple have done with them to this point? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I mean, there's a period of time, isn't there, where we, when we weren't aware, it could already be. I mean, do they? Can they? Can they take back anything if we now say we don't want to be part of it, or is it too late for whatever's I, happened I imagine so far? It's, I imagine it's too late. Okay. I imagine it's. Too late. I, I mean, I'm not saying that any of the voices necessarily are going to be ones that Apple have been working on. Their principal interest will be getting American voices down. And look, their AI narration is getting good. It's not, I don't think, adequate for characterised character voices for fiction. But for non-fiction, it's, it's a real option. And they will argue that uh, authors and publishing houses need to have a cheaper alternative than using human labour because it is very labour-intensive, as I have been proving for several years. But also in the last uh, couple of weeks, I have been working almost exclusively on audiobooks, not quite exclusively, but certainly it's been an enormous amount of my time. Yes, you've come out every now and then to eat and sleep. Yeah, but not not a lot else. <laughs> and uh, this afternoon, having recorded two chapters of a, of a production I'm working on, two very, very big chapters, I ought to stress, uh, I've been editing all afternoon. So it is very, very labour-intensive and therefore pricier than people perhaps wish to pay. Yeah, I mean, we, we, from a publisher's perspective, we know that it'll take a lot of sales to uh, recoup what we might pay for a, a freelance narrator, human mm. being. Yeah. So, it, but it, so you know, you might think listening to this, well, what's our gripe? You know, could have seen it in the uh, in the contract. Yes, that's true. Well, my gripe is this: as publishers, I don't have, we don't have the rights to license the voice prints and voices of narration narrators you know this is my voice obviously could have been used and that's my lookout but i've got to look out for the interests of people for whom narration particularly in the case of leanne walker is their income and this is not okay this is another sign that increasingly hidden in the big tech agreements that we sign, you know, just click here and agree to whatever. We assume it's in our best interests. Actually, they're hiding this sort of stuff where they're learning stuff. Now, I, 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 I find that, you know, given that Find A Way have positioned themselves in the market as not audible, not Amazon, mm. and have tried to present themselves as the honest brokers in the audio market, this is hugely damaging to their reputation, in my view, and in terms of our Hobeck relationship with them, we now have to sincerely and severely consider withdrawing working with them because I'm so angry about it. And we have to find an alternative. There is an alternative platform that has just launched. Uh, it's probably not as good, doesn't reach as many places, but 
there's a principle at, 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 at the centre of this. And I'd also have to obviously look at uh, the um, contracts. This is a, an outfit called Authors Direct, who are, um, offer about 40 different platforms, so not dissimilar to the Findaway model to, you know, you can distribute through them. But I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? When you are dealing with somebody who effectively has a monopoly, they are the only company, I'm not saying, you know, in this case, obviously there is an alternative, but uh, everything else aside, find a way would be the preferred option for us because absolutely, it's convenient, yeah. it's easy, it's and all it, in one place. Absolutely, and it goes into a particular catalogue which is extremely important in terms of reaching library listeners uh, in the United States. So that's that's important. Now, look, um, this is not the only thing that is um, giving great concern around AI. Um, another um, thing that has changed this week is that the government, at one point, were, were going to allow this is the UK government um, AI companies to be able to buy a book, for instance, feed the text into their systems. And encourage their AIs to create something similar. Mm -hmm. And this was going to be something that was exempted in UK copyright changes. But um, they have decided that's a bad idea. It is an extremely bad idea. Well, that's good news then, isn't it? To to an extent. To an extent. Well, I mean, you know, let's see. So, uh, uh, you know, we've got uh, that. Uh, perhaps headed off. Another thing that has been a positive piece of news uh, in terms of big tech is Amazon have finally, after a lot of pressure and lobbying, changed their rules about returning books. Yes, I saw that e-books. Well, yeah. And I think this is a huge change as well because quite a number of people, and I'm not sure this has happened to us a bit, a tiny bit, have had the, the phenomenon where people are basically using it as a free lending library because what they do is they will get the book on Kindle, pay their two ninety nine or whatever it is, or whatever fee mm. is being charged for that Kindle book, read it, and then return it within the, the statutory allowed time, which was seven days, and get a refund. But the refund was then passed on to the publisher and authors. Yeah, so we do see that. We see minus two ninety nine in, in yes. our um, data. It does happen. It does happen, yeah. Now, uh, what Amazon have decided to do and announced this week, after a lot of pressure from both sides of the Atlantic, is that if a book is read to a certain degree, something like 10%, then you will no longer be eligible for a refund. Fair enough. (laughs) So, at last, a shift in that regard. But um, there are other things that are afoot with with Amazon that we're going to talk about um, as we investigate but rumours circulating um, about uh, authors getting dropped by Amazon just arbitrarily. The, yeah, this is extremely worrying, isn't it? For, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, look, we, we, you know, anyone who's dealt with KDP and the, the whole system will have a litany of issues and problems that they've had in the past. We've had loads, and we've talked about it on the podcast. You know, we put productions up, and then they challenge our right to publish them, and uh, it can be weeks before we get a book out weeks after the publication date yeah which has happened so, yeah and, and, and that's just one thing and you know they've often you know they threaten people with well they do do it to people they actually just cancel their accounts because of some infringement and then you're banned from the from the from the from the shop front yeah and that, if that happened to us it would be crucifying well it would be fatal yes okay fatal <laughs> crucifying is fatal but, well yeah but that's <laughs> perhaps a little 
past that think, you know, it would be the end of Hobeck, as it stands. It would be very hard to withstand that problem. So I won't say too much at this point, but we want to do some more <laughs> research into that. Let's have a, a you know, what, what's the, the issue that you wanted to bring to, to okay. listeners' attention? This isn't happy news either, really. But um, so um, I have been working as a freelancer doing um, mainly editorial, but also publishing project management work for um, how old is my oldest child? He's 19. So 19 years I've been doing this. And um, I haven't seen much of a pay rise in that time. In fact, one of the companies I work for, I'm not going to name any names, I've been working for them for 17 years. I've only had my fee uh, increased once, and that was about 15 years ago. And it's partly because I'm too scared to ask, because they could just turn around and say, okay, we don't need you anymore. And it would hurt me more than it would hurt them. So um, there's a new report from the Literature Alliance in Scotland. So this is specifically looking at Scotland, obviously, but I think it applies uh, globally um, about the fact that freelance editors are not earning enough money. So um, full-time freelance editors are earning around £21,000 in 2022. That's terrible. You can't live on £21,000, can you? Not really, no. And an average hourly rate of £10.90, which is... <laughs> given that it's a skill that you have to learn or you have to train for, that's not very good. No, it's it's dreadful. I mean, look, it was a similar situation in the broadcast game. You know, you get this impression that broadcasters earn loads and loads of money, but the freelancers, um, I have to say, the rates of pay had been frozen for the entire decade that I was in charge of my department because, I mean, the, the free, freelance rates weren't set by me. Mm. And there were colleagues in London on the BBC World Service with years and years and years of experience earning £110 a day. So, you know, for an eight, nine-hour shift, just above minimum wage. Yeah. And now, um, and of course, you know, 10, 15 years ago before that, it wouldn't have been, it wasn't, massively generous necessarily but it you know it was enough but now it's dreadful and you, i mean it's um, it's indescribable some of the rates of pay that that local radio pay people who go and watch football matches that didn't get their petrol mm. um you, you're doing it for love that's sort well of thing. That's, uh, yeah again it like all of the creative industries it tends to exploit for love mm. unless you're at the very top so yeah um this this is something that needs to shift without question yeah, I mean, it's it's getting for me personally. It's getting increasingly difficult to um, make ends meet on doing the same amount of hours. I or I do more hours and get the same amount of value from the money I earn, and it's it's tough. Yeah, it is. It really is. Well, we don't want to moan <laughs> constantly and, and and too much, but you know, the, let's be perfectly honest. The creative industries are under enormous pressure. But let's um, let's think positively. Um, we, we, you know, we have to try. Uh, I think that, I mean, someone was, I was approached by Wired magazine, one of the leading, well, probably the leading uh, magazine that reflects tech trends yes. in the world. And they, and I offered them some quotes. I'm not sure if they've done the story yet about Find A Way. Um, but they did ask me one pertinent question, which was, you know, in a world where AI is moving in on so many areas of creative world mm -hmm. including audiobooks how do you differentiate and how do you 
you know, continue to make an impact in that market. And I said, I think that the future is that you're going to have two different models in the way that when audiobooks were first created, because they were on cassette, mm -hmm. people used to do abridged versions and unabridged versions. So what's the difference between bridged and unabridged? Well, unabridged is the full text of the book. Oh, okay. Abridged was like, a shortened version, which you get on Radio Four if you're listening to Book at Bedtime. It's it's you know take an eight hour no uh, eight hours of of novel, yeah, eight, eighty thousand words, and only put out five episodes of even fifteen minutes, yes, in a week. That's abridged, and of course you know to keep costs down. And if you wanted a version which gave you the meat of the story, but you know on two cassettes, mm. that's what they used to do. So that was, a, that was a point of difference. Now I think the point of difference is going to be abridged, unabridged, and then AI versus human narration. Well, I think like we, we were talking about when e-books first came out and everybody said, that's it, it's a death of paperbacks and hardbacks and whatever. It wasn't. People still want authenticity. They still want the human touch. They still want imagination. Mm. There will be a market for it. Absolutely, no doubt about that. But it's not going to be the death of people. As creators, no, I, I don't think it is. Um, but I mean, you know, people they will argue that it gives you another option. But if you've listened to AI stuff on YouTube, a lot of people use AI because, excuse me, they're creating videos in countries where English is not their first language. And so, what they do is they will put in a script, they'll write something, get it Google translated, and then shove it out. With <laughs> and, and, and when it, anything technical comes in acronyms yeah. or whatever it, they will just muller them it's quite humorous isn't it it is it is and um I've, I've been doing as i say some narration for these uh for the books of gordon doherty uh roman legion um books and they are extremely demanding in terms of your knowledge of pronunciations in terms of latin they're also full of emotion where people speak in broken sentences because they've got a spear in their chest or you know they're coughing up blood just about to die and they've got their final words I to say you would speak in broken sentences well, in that case i can't believe that ai operation is going to be subtle enough to deal with that not uh, at the moment no. unless it's got a lot of human input to point out the points where it needs to do something different do you see what I mean? Yes. You know, straightforward text in, you know, parentheses or whatever in, in inverted commas and speech. Yeah, it can deal with that. But when it's got something, you know, with someone stuttering or all sorts of elements, the emotion is very hard to deliver. And I find that as a performer. What it's going to be like for a computer to figure it out, I don't <laughs> know. But maybe I'm being naive. And let's just go back to over that point again. I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's right that companies should be putting in their contracts that they have, you know, given that we've used some contractors to do the narration, to have their voices uh, given up to that big system that's trying to replace them without their knowledge. And that is disgraceful. And indeed, any opportunity, because it has to come through us as publishers to get it, that permission withdrawn. The narrators have no say on it. No, I mean, it was, we, it was just that one of our narrators pointed it out. I, I wasn't aware of this at all. So, <laughs> it is, yeah, it's just, it's a squall and a storm that's brute, and I've had my say on it. And again, you know, we will look at it again.
Let's get to our interview and speak to Julie Anderson, who joined us from Clapham, as I say. Uh, it's an amazing part of South London. Uh, it was up and coming when I was first living in London uh, in many ways, and it was just about affordable for the uh, the better off of my colleagues at the BBC. <laughs> now it's way beyond that, but it is a great literary setting. And mm. uh, Julie's very proud of her connection to it. She's a former civil servant, senior civil servant, uh, now retired, but writing uh, her own uh, political thrillers, particularly, but also very heavily involved in the Clapham Literary Festival. And um, it sounds like a great event. So let's talk to Julie Anderson. Well, it's delightful to be joined by Julie Anderson from your home in South London. That's right, in Clapham. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It, it should be fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. And it's Clapham that we're going to focus on because, of course, you're heavily involved in Clapham Writers and the festival there. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Um, I'm chair of trustees of, uh, of the, the charitable organisation that runs the annual uh, book festival, um, celebrating books and reading in South London. <laughs> That's yeah, brilliant. <laughs> so how long's that been going then? Um, we started in 2016. Um, uh, essentially, the, a group of us got together. There are a lot of writers who live in Capham, um, which is <laughs> strange, but there you go. Um, and, and people who are in publishing generally. Um, and we just got together and thought, wouldn't it be fun, given that, you know, there are all of us lot here and we know lots of other writers, if we if we set up a book festival. So it, we did. And it, there was definitely something of the let's put on a show about it, if you know what I mean. Um, but we did. And we, we joined with the local theatre and a local independent bookshop and the library. And um, and that was the first Cap and Book Festival in 2016. And we've been we've been going ever since, uh, apart from 2020, of course, when nothing happened. Um, but um, we're we're now set up formally. We're a charity, um, and we have a bank account, and um, and and we have a profile. Um, indeed, we've just been nominated. And I this I've got this written down. Remember to mention the award. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've, just, we've just been nominated for um, the food and one of the food and culture. Uh, awards for 2023 for South London um, and we're in the um, uh, innovative arts category and oh. you know, why, why innovative I'm not sure <laughs> but but so is the Wimbledon Book Fest and the Polka Theatre and you know lots of others um, I guess it's because we've had to adapt given Covid and we've, we've done some interesting things we don't just do um, <clears throat> individual uh, author events now uh, you know in, in person events we also do um, literary walks and um, and online and so on. So we're we're a bit of a mixture now, uh, but um, but anyway, we're we're all getting together to do to do this on the fourteenth of October this year. So I, sh- I shall say that date several times during. The <laughs> what are we doing on the fourteenth of October? We might be able to come down. Well, you know, oh, come, we know where come. we are. We're going to be in Clapham. Um, <laughs> yes, oh, no, that would be super to see you. Do come. Well, we'd love to. We'd love to. And, and Clapham is such a, a fabulous artistic community, as you've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a lot of people. It was the, the go to place when I was working at the BBC and we were all setting up families and homes yes. in the uh, this is the mid 90s, probably the early 2000s. And a lot of my contemporaries went for Clapham and Ballam as their, you know, it was the, the affordable but very nice place to live. It, well, absolutely. I mean, I've been here. Oh, I've been here for more years than I care to remember. 
um, uh, certainly before the, <laughs> the period you just described. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it's lovely. It's Victorian, so it's leafy, but you've got the Georgian old town and you've got the common, which is which is lovely. Um, and lots of people um, from publishing move around here and lots of people from the BBC, actually. We've we've had um, we had who do we have? We had Kate Adie. Yeah. Um, uh, and Frank Gardner. Although he doesn't live around here now, um, uh, Ed Stoughton is one of our interviewers. He comes along regularly and helps us out. Um, and um, so, yeah, we've had we've had quite a few um, BBC guys because um, uh, there are quite a lot of them living around here. Absolutely, and Ed Stoughton's just had his memoir out, and uh, it's ruffled a few feathers because <laughs> when he got fired from the Today program, the yes. way that it was done and handled, oh, very BBC. Uh, this is the way you know your career ends in uh, uh, a sea of platitudes and uh, suggestions that you know this is an exciting opportunity for you losing your main gig and income uh, you know there's plenty of opportunities for you out there eventually he fought his way into uh, keeping a show on Radio 4 but yeah we've all been there those of us who left the BBC <laughs> oh, absolutely and we had we had Ed on um, uh, when when did he he come, I think it was 20, 2019 or maybe 21, uh, he came and talked about his book about um, the BBC, you know, Auntie during wartime, mm. uh, which was which was fascinating um, uh, with um, a chap called Simon Burtham, who used to live here. I don't know whether you know him. He was BBC at one point, though he was also commercial television. He did World in Action for many years. Ah, right, yeah. World <laughs> in Action. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, and um, uh, he was actually, um, Ed was very interesting talking about um, uh, what's happened to the BBC. I mean, like you say, it's very BBC, the way that he was, he was, um, um, his services were dispensed with. But I mean, he was, he was asked all sorts of questions about uh, reporting and uh, bias and so on. Specifically, I mean, yeah, Clapham is, you know, Clapham is, is almost the People's Republic of Clapham, really. Yes. <laughs> So we, you know, we we, we were the, the borough that that had, I think, the second highest vote after Gibraltar for staying in the European Union. Really, yeah. that's a great statistic. Um, and and so we, there were lots of questions uh, for Ed about, you know, the BBC reporting on Brexit and the prioritisation of balance over truth and, and all that sort of thing, uh, which was a terrifically interesting session. But we're we're very Radio Four, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, and and and. Therefore, the 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 the, um, the festival tends to be quite radio four as well. Absolutely, I'm quite radio four, so I'd like well, that. You are, you are, you are. Well, we both are. We, we both are. I mean, I used to work five live, but anyway, the the common uh, common station. Uh, no, it's interesting. I mean, we I just had a flick through your previous speakers, and mm. two friends of our program, uh, the Hopcast Book Show, have been on your. Uh, in fact, I think more than that, but certainly the ones who stand out for me are Vasim Khan oh, and Abhir yeah. Mukherjee, who oh. are two great friends of of, of uh, the program and um, the best fun ever Absolutely. to spend time with. Um, but in, in in terms of, have you got your program? Is it is it taking shape now for the fourteenth of October? See, it's on my on my etched on my soul now. <laughs> well done, well done. No, unfortunately, I would love to be able. <laughs> to preview our program but but our program director has sworn me to secrecy because oh. she's actually got people signing on the dotted line yet so um i can't actually mention it um but we are we are talking to some some very interesting names um uh some of whom have um have a a, a filmic profile a film Ooh, level profile. that's a clue <laughs> yeah. 
but I can't. I'm afraid that's it. I mean, it's, it's a horrible tease because I, I, I would be marmalized by Paula if, if I mentioned any of these. Yeah, names. but that's that, that's a great way to do it, isn't it? Because that gets everyone quite excited because we don't know. <laughs> no, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, we've had we've had some very very good people on in the past. I mean, last year we had um, our headliner was Sir Anthony Beaver, who of course mm. um, wasn't doing interviews at that stage um, because, of course, he was he'd been very ill. But um, uh, talking about his latest book on Russia, which was fascinating, and just having someone there who had this incredible comprehensive knowledge of uh, essentially twentieth century European history. You know, we're asking him because he's written that wonderful book about Civil War Spain as well. And there were questions all over the from all over the audience about about all that, too. And he just has this amazing amount of knowledge. He Um, does. Uh, His books are are incredible. I've read Stalingrad, uh, which was the one that came out in around 1999, I think. And it's the level of research that, especially at that time when he could get into the Russian archives. Yeah. So he was an, exposing all sorts of new documents that hadn't been translated into English. Yeah. Uh, and and I think equally the same sort of access went into his Berlin book, which, which followed because yeah. obviously the, you know, East German archives were, were opened up as well. Mm-hmm. And it gave him access to all sorts of facts and figures and, and just the incredible in amongst all that detail, the narrative that he's able to weave as well and take you along is extraordinary. He's, yeah, he's a great, great writer. One of the one of the one of the greats, I think, in terms of. Uh, oh, you know, he, I think he's up there with AGP Taylor. To be oh honest. well, yeah. No, so I remember reading him for A level. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't we all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is he 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 is he was and he was terrific at the festival. He is terrific, um, and it, it is it is that sort of wealth of background research. I think that. And I mean, he was he was quite amusing about being banned in Russia and, and banned <laughs> in various other places, uh, more liberal places, actually. Um, uh, he was banned in Spain for a while wow. and, uh, because because he explained because of a mistranslation in, in, in his Spanish Civil War book. Right. Uh, which which um, uh, which essentially turned the meaning completely opposite um, uh, to, to that which he had intended. But that has been put right now. Uh, so he is no longer banned in Spain. Um, he was for a time, but he's still banned in Russia. Um, uh, something he seems quite proud of, I have to say. <laughs> well, um, I think probably being banned for, by this version of Russia is is a, is a badge of honour. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But it, but he was just terrific. We could we sold the theatre out. We could have filled two theatres um, uh, with you know people to to, to come and, and and see him. Uh, he was he was. Pretty tremendous. But Abia came that same day, actually. I, I interviewed him for the crime time slot. We always do a crime mm. um, slot. Uh, and, and he came. And A, he's a joy to interview because you don't have to do anything. I mm. mean, it's like you point him at the audience and off he goes. Yeah. Uh, and and, and it, he was hugely, hugely entertaining um, and, and absolutely fabulous. I really enjoy his Wendell and Banerjee books. I think they're, they're super. But I also um, like Vaz's um, uh, Persis Wadia, uh, you know, uh, for the Malabar House series that he's writing. Um, uh, I saw him recently. He was at the he was at the Crime Writers Association Christmas party before 
before Christmas. But <laughs> yes, yes, he's he's on the board now. I think. Um, yes, he is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, a cover reveal for that next book uh, came out. I think a week ago or so. That's oh, right. Right. I haven't seen that. Yeah. Very exciting. Oh, they are the great covers. So yeah. the two of them are just are brilliant. The, well, the podcast. The podcast is fab, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, the Red Hot Chili Writers. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a plug for them. We'll keep them happy. When we next bump into them at Crime Fest or wherever it might be. So, you know, balancing that with, I guess you're describing a festival that that started off with uh, that burst of enthusiasm that often does with a great idea like this. But then the cold reality of, as you say, 2020, not being able to hold the event. um, It's one of those things where I've looked at, you know, even the bookseller, every week we see a festival saying that this year we can't afford to run it, uh, X, Y, Z, part of the country. So has there been a point during that uh, the lockdown and, and, and such like where the future of the festival was ever in jeopardy? I don't think we actually thought about it, to be honest. Um, mm. I think um, uh, it was interesting when we got to sort of January, February 21, um, and we were thinking, well, are we going to have it this year? We didn't have it last year. And, um, and the sort of management team was divided, to be absolutely honest. Uh, because it was a punt, you know, even though it was it would happen in the autumn, we weren't entirely sure that, you know, one would be allowed to have book festivals and, you know, in theatres and so on. Uh, and it was a punt. Um, and we decided that we would go for it, but but we would diversify somewhat. So we would have some live in-person events, not not too many. We just had we went for two big names. We went for Sir Michael Morpurgo, oh. um, uh, which which was hugely successful. And um, uh, uh, and actually, it was Ed that year. Ed came and did his his um, his session in the evening. Um, and then um, we had um, some online events around the sort of showcase um, uh, in-person events and also some walks because Clapham uh, has a lot of writers living here now, but in the past has had even more. I mean, I yeah. did some did some research for it and and found uh, it was just it is astonishing. I mean, you know, did you know that the Times newspaper started in Clapham? I didn't no. Know that. no. Well, it did. Come up, come up, come to Clapham Book Fest on the fourteenth of October. I'm doing the walk again, so come and come on the walk. I love that. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. love that sort of thing. I like the idea of the walks because I haven't heard of that anywhere else. Doing a literary walk. What does that involve? Um, well, it involves me tramping around the tramping around Clapham Common with a group of people. Um, but actually, um, it, it's it, it's more difficult um, uh, deciding which writers to leave out than it is to find material there is so much there is just so much and and I mean we restrict it or my version of the walk is around the common but um the writer Anne-Marie Neary have you come across her she's an Irish writer uh she also lives in in Clapham uh, and she focused very much on uh Clapham North Side and the area between Clapham North Side and the Wandsworth Road Mm. because you have the I mean uh, I mean a, a, an amazing concentration of of wonderful writers so you have Angela Carter living uh, who lived down there lived in Clapham for many many years uh opposite opposite um uh the and I've my, I've just forgotten his name <laughs> a very famous <laughs> Japanese writer but um uh Angela Carter ran um a salon uh, which I didn't know about until Anne-Marie and I did some research for this in the London Library. She would help um, young aspiring writers uh, around her kitchen table. And these included, and wait for the names, J.G. Ballard, Salman Rushdie, (laughs) 
um, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, so, um, and these people, I mean, all of them have, uh, and, and Rushdie in particular, have have actually um, um, gone public with his thanks and gratitude to for, to Carter um, for all the help she gave him when he was up and coming. Likewise, Ishiguro. So we, we can actually claim a Nobel laureate. You can. <laughs> yeah. in as, as well as the, the probably the most famous uh, writer of fiction who was never nominated for a, a Nobel, of course, which is Graham Greene, who lived overlooking Clapham Common. Mm. Amazing. And, yeah. uh, and set, uh, set his novel, um, The End of the Affair, on Clapham Common. Sorry, I, th- I think I'd be too scared to sit in a cafe in Clapham because you're going to end up as a character in someone's book. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be full of writers. <laughs> well, I, uh, the awful thing is, it's true. <laughs> I'm in the full of writers bit, if not the you know characters in someone's book. But yeah, there are there are a lot of us around. <laughs> That's staggering. I mean, I, I used to get very excited when I was taking. I used to be a tour guide. Uh, between the ages oh, you can of, give me some 18 tips. and 25. Sorry? You can give me some tips. Oh, I, I, no, you've, I think you've got you it down. Tips, because he makes the stories up. Yeah, there is there is that. There is that. I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing so good as a, as a made-up Cambridge University story. That but... gets in a history book. Yeah. Really? Yeah, okay. Oh. Well, I, I think, you know, listeners probably, you know, it's about 50 episodes ago when I first mentioned this. So I, I will tell you what the story is. Um, one, of the, one of the stops that we used to have is a very sort of uh, prosaic stop. Uh, on our bus this was an open top bus going around cambridge and you could hop on and off as you wished yeah, a company called guide friday they're no longer with us unfortunately but um the principle was that you can get on and off uh, and people would get on at the bus station at drummer street which is uh yeah it's okay it's got emmanuel college on one side and and when we parked up we could see over into the grounds of emmanuel college very high wall but you could see over and there were these gigantic ducks wandering <laughs> around now i on my very first day as a guide, uh, we were stuck there. There was a bit of traffic. We couldn't get going. So I made up a story. And uh, somebody asked me, hey, those ducks, they're enormous. You know, sort of some, some Texan bloke or something. Uh, and I go, yes, that's because each of them, uh, when you become a fellow of Emmanuel College, you are presented with your own personal duck. And fellows... <laughs> and fellows... Uh, pay the ground staff to make sure that their duck is particularly well looked after. And so they become the fattest ducks at Cambridge University. And there are 44 of them to match the number of fellows that currently are within the college. I made this figure up. Uh, Sadly, of course, when a fellow passes on, the duck goes with them. And they they are served at the memorial dinner. (laughs) Feasted upon by the master and the senior fellows. So that story is now in a, in a history book in Cambridge um, as, as official fact. And it just came spinging out of my head. Wonderful. That yeah. is, <laughs> that's in a book. It is. It is, absolutely. But, I mean, it's just the idea of the ducks. I mean, that's what's it's the most absurd, <laughs> these ducks waddling around. Yeah. Imagine them. They had sort of little gold name tags on. Yeah, that's the sort of thing. Yeah, they 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 wear you know um, sub fusk or whatever they do. You know, in Cambridge, the, the equivalent uh, on feast days. Um, no, I mean it. It, um, it just so happened they had a pond there, and you know the, the they were just ducks. They were just <laughs> ducks. Just random ducks. But, uh, I think that's anyway. a wonderful story. It really is. Thank you. No, I mean the trick to it. I mean when I was going around on my Cambridge tour was that there were a number of literary 
points within that tour clearly because so many great writers so you would go past in silver street you would look up and there's a tower on the corner of queen's college just by the river mm-hmm. and there's a tiny little window at the top and it was the room that erasmus had at queen's college wow. so there you are one of the great humanists uh, then you would drive around and then occasionally and i've told this story many times on the podcast stephen hawking would roll into view <laughs> Yeah, and at that stage, he was the best-selling non-fiction writer in the history of the world uh, in the mid, you know, mid eighties. Yeah, with the brief history of time, it was still number one when I was still doing my two or three years later, and there he was. You know, so you you would have all these opportunities to talk and about great literature. You sold figures. him pants once, didn't you? I did sell him some underpants. Yeah, in Marks and Spencers, they sold Stephen Hawking some pants. <laughs> <laughs> That's like one of those things you know. You go on quiz shows on TV, yeah, and Victoria Corrin says, and and and. And here's um, Adrian, whose claim to fame is selling <laughs> Stephen Hawking some underpants in lots yeah. of <laughs> That's right, and Clive James as well. So another great literary figure. Or having an argument with Jermaine Greer over printer ribbons. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, these things happen. So, you know, the, the, the literary thing, it's, it's, a great, it's a great hook. And it is always amazing when you mention someone that people have heard of in terms of their writing and they just sort of go oh. they just it's, it's that place though isn't it it's that mm. sense of place yeah you think that that person yeah. lived there walked down that street and you know i, I, I kind of have this things. vision of, of of clapham being surrounded by blue plaques on <laughs> on you know, every them. other door <laughs> i don't know whether it's every other door but there are quite a lot of them it's interesting you mentioned sort of sense of place because the very first um clapham book fest in 2016 we did um, uh, we did a, a, a session with um, Elizabeth Buckham, the novelist who who lives just around the corner from me actually, and um, uh, Professor um, oh heavens um, Simon Beaumont, uh, who was the Beaumonts are a, a, a very old um, Clapham family, but he's now um, living out in Ealing, and he just bought out a wonderful book called Night Walking. I don't know whether you've come across it about walking around London uh, after dark, but but going back to sort of medieval times and uh, and even earlier uh, up to the present day. I mean, he's he's friends with that sort of group of flanners that include Will <laughs> Self and um, you know the others, um, uh, and uh, he and and I chaired uh, the discussion, um, and it was actually very interesting um, talking about um, Clapham as a sort of focus for writers really and 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 why um somewhere like Clapham should attract quite so many of them now to an extent I mean it's economic like you described you know if you lived in the BBC and you want a nice leafy area that's affordable when you when you buy your flat or or you know your first house you, you look south of the river and there's Clapham with its common and so on but that wasn't I, I guess um that couldn't be the only reason because Clapham through the ages has has attracted writers I mean, at the earliest I could find it, we had a Clapham writer on on the Mayflower um, uh, that, that, that sailed to America. Um, and he became the second governor of Virginia, I believe. Um, and he wrote Home Thoughts from Abroad and they were published in London. Um, uh, but he was the earliest one I could find. But I mean, that's long before Clapham was even part of London, uh, you know, and, and yeah. then you, you go yeah, through... Yeah. Uh, you know the sort of the heyday of Clapham, which is the late seventeenth, early eighteenth century, and you get Samuel Pepys coming to live here uh, to escape the, the the bad London air, 
And in fact, there's still, um, it's interesting because his, the, the house where he stayed um, has long gone. Um, uh, he is uh, recognised in a number of ways. And uh, most recently by another writer, John Lanchester, who oh, right, lives yeah. in Clapham, who you <laughs> may have read Capital. Yes. His book Capital, which of course is set in Pepys Road. Um, as a as a nod to a, a predecessor there, um, and so you get you get all that life of books begetting books and being self referential and so on, um, but it does go back. Uh, writer settling here goes back a long time, and long before it was the escape, uh, the affordable escape um, uh, from from the city. Um, so what was it about Capham that attracted them? And and we had a long discussion, and actually came up. Um, our answer was 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 the common actually. Yes, mm. I was going to say it must be the common. Yeah, because it's that sort of liminal space where you know you have you, you, the mind becomes free as well as the body, as it were, and allows you to 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 escape from from the the, the confines. Um, uh, and um, it was a terrifically interesting discussion. Um, we we ought to repeat it at some point, I guess. But uh, um, uh, uh, that was that was the very first book fest. That's amazing. Mm. I have to say, Peeps used to figure on my tour, dare I say, because he went to Magdalen College in Kent. <laughs> and, uh, and on Bridge Street, if you ever visit, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, opposite the college is a fabulous timber-framed building. It's about three stories. And uh, there are carvings. So at eye level, when you're on an open-top bus, are carvings, very lewd carvings of... Oh, lewd ones. Uh, yes. Oh. Yes, because it was a brothel. Uh, as frequented by Samuel Pepys. It's now part of the college. But the, these lewd carvings <laughs> are ladies with their uh, uh, assets uh, on view and a gentleman um, holding their... Um... Uh, yes, OK. Mm. I think we get the picture. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I used to glory in telling this story, as you can imagine, because for those on the top deck, it was always a bit of titillation, you know, oh, Samuel Pepys and a bit of this, that and the other. Uh, and then one day I didn't realise, but... Uh, 20 Carmelite nuns had got on board downstairs and I hadn't seen them get on board. And I'm telling this story uh, about a bordello. Um, it didn't go down too well. And the sadly. nuns weren't pleased. No, they were not happy. The stony faces when they came downstairs. <laughs> there you go. But actually, um, that's, that's interesting. That's not my experience of, of sort of cloistered clergy, as it were. They always seem really up for a laugh, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, I, I, they either didn't understand me or they understood me too well. But I, I you know, it, it was, it, you know, sometimes so you'd have them rolling in the aisles. Yes. The punters. And it would be <laughs> wonderful. And other times you would tread somewhere that they didn't want to go and mm. they, they'd take umbrage. But that's that's just the way I used to do things. So don't take my leave from my tour guiding thing, <laughs> pushing the boundaries. Um, in terms of uh, your own writing career let's 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 turn to that now julie um because uh we, we really ought to um political thrillers what's the attraction uh to writing them for you um well um i was a senior civil servant in, in whitehall for many years um and when i was persuaded that i ought to write crime i started out writing historical fiction um and um set in 13th century spain which was a niche market um, and <laughs> as you can imagine, did not sell that well. But um, I was then persuaded to try my hand at crime and contemporary crime. Uh, and um, where would I set it? Well, the obvious place to set it is the world I know very well, which is the world of Whitehall and Westminster. And um, I wrote the first uh, Cassandra Fortune uh, book um, back in 2018. 
um, uh, entitled Plague. And it was published in 2020. <laughs> 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 Timing. Um, it was, um, uh, it's not a, a pandemic book at all, um, but uh, it, it does, astonishingly. Um, uh, uh, the villain is um, is selling off public contracts to cronies. So, <laughs> oh, wow. when the PPE scandal yeah um, Lady Moan uh, raises her head again on our podcast yeah, he likes talking about her yeah. <laughs> yeah well I'm not surprised I mean I think that, that it should be talked about an awful lot quite frankly uh, yes. I think you can't talk about it too much because these people essentially have swindled the taxpayers as far as I can see mm. um, but anyway um, that that was an element as was um, a demonstration um, Whitehall I mean uh, in my book you have these sort of anti-science campaigners um, uh, for which read anti-vax campaigners. Yeah, how so strange. And, and it was, it, 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 that all seemed to be incredibly prescient. And then I, I sort of took her off to Greece for the second one. And then I, the third one is, is came out last September called Opera, yeah. which uh, is focused back in, in the world of Westminster and Whitehall again, which has become a, which is a sort of espionage um novel i guess um and um and that's that's doing quite well it's been quite well received so yeah oh, good um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite pleased about that um and that 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 is the trilogy um uh, so i'm i'm writing something a bit different now i'm writing something I, I decided i wanted to well the genesis of it anyway was i wanted to write about the pandemic without writing about the pandemic um uh, and i don't write speculative fiction so i looked um, as is uh, a sort of knee-jerk reaction for me to the past and um, uh, it seemed to me that there were lots of correspondences with um, the immediately the world immediately post-World War II uh, with a, a sort of bankrupt and uh, austere Britain um, uh, after a global conflagration in which many people had died. Um, so uh, my new book, which is going to be the first in uh, another series, probably a trilogy. Why do I buy, write books in threes? I don't know. <laughs> um, um, uh, is set in 1946 in Clapham, um, uh-huh. in a in a, a real place, uh, which is um, uh, opposite Clapham South Underground Station. The building is still there, which was the South London Hospital for Women and Children, which. Oh was a remarkable place. It was set up in 1913 by two women surgeons who had trained in and did one had worked in the new hospital in North London, which became the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, uh, a hospital run by and for women. Uh, and um, essentially um, frustrated by the lack of opportunities open to them. And in response to um, uh, a huge demand for women, from women to be treated by women, because the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson was always oversubscribed, they decided to set up their own hospital in South London. And these two ladies, um, suffragists and feminists, did it. They raised the money with with their friends and they bought two buildings uh, on the south side of Clapham Common and set up the South London um, and um, and that was in existence there until it was closed by Wandsworth Health Authority in, in um, uh, 1986 um, uh, as part of a, a general reorganisation. Um, and, and it was much loved by the people who worked there and the people who were treated there and, and became a sort of core celebrity for the women's movement um, because it was the building was occupied for two years. <laughs> Uh, with many of the nurses who had worked there continuing to offer nursing 
uh, in the in the 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 buildings there. Um, and we had, the, I mean, this was just before my time in Clapham, uh, but there were Greenham Common women there, and and people from all over the globe. Women's groups came to to try and uh, force um, uh, the government to hold it open. There were questions in Parliament and and so on. Um, uh, but eventually it, it, it was it was closed. And um, have you sorry, this is a tangent. Have you seen a film called Green for Danger? No, no. Do if you like mystery stories, it's mm. um, a black and white film set during World War Two in Britain with Alistair Sim as the police inspector. Ah. And Trevor Howard as one of the doctors. It's a it's a it was based on a book by Christiana Brand which is um, uh, regarded as one of the classic locked room mysteries. Um, uh, and it, it, it's, a, it's a little little gem of a film that I've always admired. Um, and I wanted that in my book, that sort of uh, a, 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 a setting. And, and there was, you know, the buildings, which is now, it's a Tesco on the ground floor and apartments above. But, you know, there was the building of the South London Hospital just down the road from me. Uh, and so, you know, Hey ho! That's uh, that's the genesis of my latest, which is which is in manuscript form at the moment. So Excellent! Oh, that's, not, that's, that's exciting. Yeah. That does sound exciting. That sounds. I also love when you you base TV it dramatization. Yeah, when it's based too. in reality enough that you know you, the people can refer to where it was set and they can see where it was set and so it's, oh, it's, it's just, well, yeah. place and history. Well, I, 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 places I've realised incredibly important to me as a as a, a writer. I mean, they, if you if you read the Cassie Fortune novels, especially the two set in London, although actually the the other one set in Greece is set in mm. a real place too. Um, uh, you will find all sorts of places you can go and visit. I did a a walk for a plague walk um, when plague came out during 2020. Of course, we couldn't do anything inside. And a lot of the publicity that had been planned, of course, was 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 shelved because you know you couldn't get um, groups of people together. Um, uh, but one of the things that um, did occur to me to do was to do a walk. Um, so I, it was just for publicity purposes, you know, with a with a photographer walking the course of the old River Tyburn uh, from from um, uh, sort of well north just north of Oxford Street. Down mm. through um, uh, Westminster to um, Thorny Island, and, and oddly enough, I'm talking to the Thorny Island Society tomorrow night. Uh, the Thorny <laughs> Island Society in Friends of St James's Park um, at six thirty. So, if anyone actually, this will go out after I've done that. You will. You will. <laughs> I can't puff it. Uh, but um, but yeah. So it, it again, it's these these places are real that appear in it, um, mm. and indeed a lot of the hidden places too. Uh, people don't don't know about, um, especially under Whitehall, um, which um, I um, did know about because of my my time there as a, a civil servant and uh, and especially a civil servant who liked history. And so you know, <laughs> cat, catnip for me, really. Absolutely, no. They they have featured those uh, passages that uh, lead down from an Admiralty Arch have been featured in one of our books. Have they? Which one? Yeah, the Angel of, Angel oh, the Angel of Whitehall. Of Whitehall, yeah. But, oh. <laughs> ironically. Um, right. Yeah, by Lewis Hastings. Uh, and a lot of the uh, the drama and action under those those uh, you know wartime passages uh, through Admiralty Arch into the you know the bunker that Admiralty building and you know the, that big concrete monstrosity that backs onto the mm-hmm. um, Horse Guards Parade that kind of area. It's it is astonishing, and I, I'm. I have good friends who, who one or two who are uh, in the civil service still, and 
I just love hearing about what's down there because they've, they've got a similar historical bent. So, uh, yeah, it's brilliant. That sounds great. I think about Tyburn, um, that you mentioned it, the River Tyburn, but Tyburn itself, yeah. the famous place where you know the majority of public executions were, were done. I find it that it's now Marble Arch. People call yeah. it Marble or Speaker's Corner. I find it incredibly <laughs> there's an aura around that little section mm. on the top of Oxford Street uh, next to uh, uh, Park Lane. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's still got that feeling of the terror and the horror of the things that happened there, I think. don't know the for famous, you if that's the case. Well, the famous triple tree. Um, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Mark Gattis wrote uh, a short story which was turned into a ghost story on BBC, I think, mm. which included, um, uh, it was set in a, a house which had been an old house with, um, you know, the sort of wainscot panelling. Mm. Uh, and the wood was taken from one of the, the uh, triple trees. At oh, my goodness. And that uh, then had, you know, all sorts of um, spooky ramifications. I'm sure within, it did. Within the house. But but that was that was all about um, uh, th- that sort of atmosphere that you're, you're talking about. Um, I, I actually say the only the atmosphere I get around around. Um, Hyde Park Corner is is fumes. I mean, you know, really bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it it's a it is an odd sort of place that that sort of little island of of uh, of of nothing really. Um, yeah, it is. And then once you go into Hyde Park, then then you know, uh, there's a different feel. But you have to walk for about five minutes to get rid of the traffic, and then suddenly it's uh, it, the, the silence starts to descend and then it's the sound of people enjoying themselves and, 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 <laughs> yeah. and it takes over which is extraordinary have you, um, have you read there's um uh, neil stevenson's baroque trilogy um uh, and the third one is called oh it'll come to me but it's um uh, it actually features um uh, the hero of the book uh, being um um uh, taken to tyburn for his execution on the back of you know the upturned carts yeah. that they used to have to sit in, and along that that um, recognised procession, and they mm. have recognised stops where you know the the priest comes out and tries to save your soul and and so on and so forth, and and he's taken along that procession route to Tyburn where he's hung, um, uh, and then um, uh, there's a riot and um, because the uh, College of Physicians want his body. Uh, and of course, lots of lots of the of, of ordinary people are uh, again um, dissection after death and so on. So, so mm. he survives. But um, it's called the System of the World. That's right. There were three in the Baroque trilogy: the Confusion, uh, the System of the World, and um, another one which I can't remember the name of. But they're terrific reads. They're great fun. Uh, and there is this this set piece at the end of book three where Jack is taken to Tyburn to be hung. Uh, it's it's it's. Very, very interesting. Oh, must yeah, must get to that. Must get to that. And in terms of um, running Clapham writers, uh, how much does that support your writing in terms of having that community of, of creatives that you're uh, you know, you're so attached to? Um, well, a lot, really. Uh, I mean, I have there are. You asked me earlier about whether the book festival might have died because of COVID. And I think one of the reasons that it didn't, and we never even thought that it would, was that we all, I mean, the people who organise this actually really like each other. 
<laughs> it's it's we enjoy each other's company we enjoy talking about books we enjoy going out for meals we enjoy all the stuff around organizing a book festival and and that was i think one of the reasons why we um we never even questioned that it it might stop because we were enjoying ourselves too much <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean we don't we don't have any subsidy and we don't have we have very little sponsorship. We just have some local businesses who sponsor it. So it's it it has to pay for itself. So it it, it it's um and this is a very bonding experience when it gets to two weeks before the best showcase day happens and you haven't sold enough tickets to cover the costs. Mm. Uh, and we all get incredibly stressed and you know go on about more publicity and et cetera, et cetera. Um and getting it into um the Royal Society of Literature um uh, magazine or um, tweets or whatever get get it out there um and, and then of course the the day actually happens and it's fine <laughs> <There's no problem. laughs> yeah. but, but there's an amazing bonding experience there <laughs> um uh, and so you know I, it's it's terrific um and i i also i mean a lot of those people are writers and um uh, some of them are great friends and so it, it's rather wonderful having you know you can go for a walk around the common and i can both Two, two or three people can sound off about you know the publishing industry and their agents and whatever um uh, and also you know if one gets stuck it's 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 good to be able to talk to to someone uh, and they're all and because I was a civil servant for so long I mean the people around here have been writing for their entire careers I mean Lizzie's um, published sort of 18 novels and wow. there are others like that so they it's just tremendous being able to tap into that sort of knowledge and experience really um, as a relatively new writer um, you know <laughs> it, it's it, it's it's great terrific well on I that want positive to move. note yeah no I, I, yeah too, too right yeah in Stafford no there aren't but anyway we, we'll... is that where you are Stafford Staffordshire yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Staffordshire. well Staffordshire's lovely and you've got I mean um that's um Dr Johnson isn't it is it Dr Johnson uh, I think so, and uh, we we got the fisherman. What's his name? Isaac Isaac Walton. Isaac, Isaac Walton. Walton. Yeah, and Dave Gorman, of course. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a beautiful part of the world. I love the countryside. It is. It is. It is. It just needs some decent cafes and some writers working in them. <laughs> hey, nice no, 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 no. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let us let us get to the the, the moment that everyone dreads, uh, including <laughs> the listeners. No, no, no. They love this bit. Okay, <laughs> it's time for the random question. I will do the. Proper introduction now. Rebecca's random question. <laughs> so I don't know if you've got any pets or not, but it's related to pets. Um, recently, I came across this cat called the Palace Cat. Now, a Palace Cat lives in very cold climates and is a big, fluffy thing with teeth. It's a cat, though. And I thought I'd love to have one of those. So my question is, what's the most unusual animal you'd like to have as a pet? Oh, <laughs> now. Well, I've had cats all my life. We don't have any at the moment because when we retired, we decided just before COVID, um, well, my husband retired just before COVID, um, that we would like to travel. So um, we, when our last cat died, we, we didn't replace her, but, but we've always had a house full of, of cats. Um, uh, and, and so my obvious answer to that would be something like a big cat, you know um uh not not i you know it's it's like when you're 10 you go and watch born free at the cinema you know and you, want, <laughs> yes. you want a lion for the rest of your life 
basically. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so, so I suppose um, my my first reaction to that question would be, I'd like a big cat of some kind. But I guess that's not that unusual. Um, uh, if you're looking for something uh, more interesting, my niece keeps lizards. Mm, uh, that's quite is, interesting. And Komodo, she's got a Komodo dragon. No, that um, is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and actually, my godson was given, my godson and his new wife were given a Komodo dragon as, as one of their wedding presents. It was a surprise from some of his mates. He's a doctor. <laughs> so, <you> know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so when they, when they got to the, um, the bridal chamber in the evening, because they, 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 they held the wedding in this beautiful 17th century country house, when they got to the bridal chamber in the evening, there was a very large cage with a Komodo dragon in it, <laughs> at which point Andrea hit the roof. Um, but anyway, that, that, that sort of, um, I haven't really answered your question, but I hope I've given you some no, good stories. That's an amazing story. There is actually a, do- a domestic cat. I can't remember its name, but it, it kind of looks like um, a leopard. But it's, mm. uh, do you remember? Yes, yeah, you, you showed it? me some pictures. So, oh, it was the, um, the African... some sort of weird name, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. One uh, B or something. Yeah. Yeah, something like one. Yeah, it's got one B on the end of its name, and it's a real cat, and it's domestic, domestic cat, but it's massive. It can oh. climb onto. It could just lean on the kitchen surface. It's so big. Yeah. But it, it's so it's like having a big cat without the yeah. danger. <laughs> oh well, I'll have one of those then, please. Whatever they're called. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, yeah, we're going to have to, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's stretched us now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we we don't have any ambitions other than we've got Aki, our cat. My brother once had a stick insect as a pet. Yeah. Not very cuddly, but... <laughs> no, no. But then neither are lizards. I, I no, can't that's true. Yeah, my, my niece is called Rebecca, and I can't, I can't <laughs> quite understand what she sees in the lizards. But But every time I go and visit, I'm, you know, I have to go in and look at the... Vivarium, is it? I'm not sure. Yes, a vivarium. Yeah, that's right. Vivarium, and and say hello because she's got she gives them names as well. So I have to say hello to these <laughs> lizards, and um, and she goes and gets um, things like worms and feeds them. Oh, I wouldn't like that bit. Well, I've been reading a book um, or listening to it, actually uh, about Maxwell Knight, who you yeah. possibly are familiar with because he was the head of MI5 um, and is the inspiration behind M. Let me guess, he kept stick insects. No, he kept (laughs) all sorts. And actually, I think he also lived in Clapham at one point. Uh, Certainly, he had a flat in Tooting, which had a bear in it um, at one stage. What what, what else would you put in your flat in Tooting? Exactly. This bear eventually had to go. um, But (laughs) but, uh, he he had a menagerie of animals at all points in his life. It It was his great passion. And... Um, yeah, he had the most extraordinary range of animals at, at one point, but he had a, he had a bear. Uh, <laughs> domestic. Well, we all have bears. We have teddy bears, don't we? I guess. Yeah, yeah, we like bears, but, we but like he, bears. he had uh, a considerably sized bear. Live, I think it's actually when he was living uh, in St James's. Anyway, uh, it, but the, the the this book is is peppered this this incredible guy who uh, rose up through the ranks in the 1920s, became the mm definitive spy master Mm -hmm. um and yet had this extraordinary love of keeping weird pets and and loads of them Uh, and his poor long-suffering wife had to put up with all this yeah 
extraordinary. You, you can also imagine, I mean, St. James's is just so classically the park, isn't it, for spies? Mm. Yes. And, and you know, when you have, in the old sort of black and white movies, you have the two men sitting, because they're always men, sitting yeah. on a park bench. On a park bench, yeah. ducks, um, you know, and, and passing surreptitiously documents yes. to each other or that, which, of course, you know, somebody like Philby actually did. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, I, I now imagine uh, um, <laughs> spy masters not just sort of going out there and feeding the ducks, but taking their bear for a walk. Yeah, taking their bear for a walk. <laughs> yeah. St. James's Park. Um, yeah. To eat the ducks. <laughs> to eat the ducks belonging to the fellows oh, of yes, Emmanuel, Emmanuel College, College, Cambridge. That's right. Even. I think we have uh, a story there. We have. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Julie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Let's remind people then on October the 14th this year. Clapham Book Festival. Clapham, Clapham Book Festival, uh, organised by Clapham Writers. Now, I, I noticed that uh, if people uh, want to know more about Clapham Writers and actually donate to you, there mm. is a way of doing so. On there the, is. We, the have, we, have, we have a website. Um, we are www.claphambookfestival.com. Um, and um, and the charity has its own too, which is www.claphamwriters.com. Um, uh, so yeah, if you would like to donate money to us, um, we are run entirely by volunteers, and um, uh, and it takes quite a lot of work to do, but it's huge fun. And I hope I'll see you two there next. Week. I'd I'd like well, to. We would. Just, yeah. yeah. Like I mean, it's on. It's in the diary now. That's so yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Julie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. The passion for Clapham and everything. The passion literary. for Clapham. Do you know, I, yeah. I was actually in London yesterday. Um, mm. I went there for the day. And... You went south of the river as well. I did? Yeah, you went to Waterloo. Oh, is that south of the river? Yes. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so I met um, uh, one, two, three, four university friends for lunch at a place called Tass in Waterloo. And uh, very near the old Vic. So that took me by surprise as well, because I was walking along the street and there was mm. the old Vic. Um, Which, of course, featured very heavily in a recent episode. Yes, exactly that. And we talked to Anne Coates. So I thought of Anne Coates and um, I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could say to my friends, let's go to Clapham, but they wanted to go to Camden Market instead. So near, so near but yet not quite near enough. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll do, <laughs> we will do it. Um, we're often our holes not so long away. We could go through Clapham. Well, it would be a pain if we did, and we'd have to pay the uh, the congestion charge or whatever they call it now, ULES or whatever it is, um, if we did do so. But, um, yeah, we'll go to Clapham before long. Good. Uh, absolutely. Uh, this week we also went to see our Uncle Bob. We did. Mr. We... Robert Dawes on stage in a fabulous one-man show called um, Woodhouse in Wonderland. Uh, P.G. Woodhouse reflecting on his life in his uh, uh, Long Island um, recreation of his study. And, <laughs> and, and uh, Robert is brilliant in it. He, I mean, he was born to play that part, really. He was fantastic, wasn't he? He just, yeah. It just flowed. He was funny. He was witty, everything. It was sang. Brilliant. Sang a lot. He did sing a lot. and uh, Very well. Uh, from, um, um, I've forgotten the name of the musical now. Anything, <laughs> Anything goes. goes. <laughs> Anything goes, yeah. and then we took him to the pub. And we had a pint. We did, we did. It was it was terrific, and uh, our fabulous cover designer, Chain Matt, was also there with her husband Ian. So, just brilliant um, uh, evening. And uh, you know, Bob obviously has a massive passion for it, 
Uh, I highly recommend it. It's going to a lot of theatres around the country in the UK, and it's going to go to the States, and apparently it's going to India as well. So uh, plenty of opportunities to catch it <laughs> in Mumbai at some point in the uh, not-too-distant future. Uh, highly recommend it. He's currently playing in Windsor as we record this. Um, he's, uh, yeah, it's a tour de force, and uh, brilliantly written by William Humble as well, who's a, he's a great writer. So, uh, yeah, highly recommended. And we're not just saying that because it's our Uncle Bob. No, it was brilliant. At all. Yeah, it was really, really good. Yeah. So that was terrific. Uh, in terms of what awaits us this week, we've got a week until half term. We do. So, yes, last week of, of full-on work. Um, our submissions, uh, well, as we record this, are closing tonight. But by the time this podcast goes out, you're too late. Yeah, um, we've had a lot. Uh, as you'd expect. I yeah. mean, you know, we, 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 we rarely open the submissions window because it's just, we get swamped. And obviously we're looking forward to reading them and getting some uh, hope, fabulous potential authors for Hobeck books. But um, we're going to use that half-term break. We're in Sussex for the week. We will continue to do the podcast, of course. Um, but uh, during that period, we will be reading submissions. And it will mean I'm not near my studio, which um, having... I've got cabin fever at the moment because I'm putting so many hours in there every day to You might to meet get withdrawal symptoms. Meet, yeah, meet my commitments. Um, no. No. I mean it is a it is a very enclosed world. And it, you know, it's it's uh when when I'm in the zone, when the words are flowing freely and I'm not stumbling or whatever, it's actually a real pleasure to do it. But for me to get to that point, sometimes you get you, yeah, I mean, last night would be a good example. So it was about 10 to 8 at night, and I was doing my third chapter of the day, and it was over an hour long. By this point, I'd gone past the hour mark on the actual recording. And what I ought to say is is that I'm editing as I go. So I go over the bits that I've made a mistake and pick it up where uh, it's called punch and roll is the technique. It's very, very useful for doing this thing a lot quicker than I did in the past. But I was, I could have wept because I just, there was one sentence. I took 10 run-ups at it and there was, I can't remember what the word was. I just could not say it at all. I tried doing it separately and then editing it back in. That didn't work. Oh, I wonder what the word was. Oh. You'll have to let us know. Well, I always have, there's there's always going to be something that. Formica. No, 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 no. It wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't know how to say it. It's just that I couldn't get my tongue through it. I just couldn't say all the consonants in the order that they came clearly enough to get it landing. Blimey. And I, I just could weep because I knew the kids were hungry. I knew I had to go to the chippy to go and get us dinner. And, you know, I, I could hear the, them sort of stumbling around, sort of pacing around, waiting for someone like to. tigers. Pr- yeah, because it's an hour later than normal. And you're in London on the train back, and I just I could have I, oh, I, I, it was so it was soul destroying, it really was. Were well, you poor thing? Yeah. And uh, next week we've also got Valentine's Day, haven't we? So oh boy, I'm going to get showered with love and petals. Mm, yes, yes, you are. I yes. was I was in M and S garage today, and mm. even though it's two days till Valentine's Day as we record this, mm. there were three men came in and bought flowers and chocolates. <laughs> Of an MS garage. Well, that's that's for their mothers, uh, you know, as they go and visit them in their in their uh, home. It's or very whatever. cute, though. I thought it was quite cute. Yeah, it, it, yeah, well observed. Well, look, um, thank you so much for joining us. We ought to mention who is our guest next week. It's a lady called Abigail Osborne who is published with Bloodhound Books. Fabulous, and writes 
psychological thrillers. Yeah, so we're looking forward to talking to her about her experience as a writer and a published author. Fabulous. Well, uh, we'll look forward to that. And, uh, well, we wish you, um, obviously, a great week. Uh, it's It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Don't forget to go to our website at net for details of all of our books. Have we got any coming out we this week? We have. I was just about to say, we haven't mentioned Bad Blood by R.D. Nixon is publishing tomorrow as this goes out. So How can we forget that? Let's talk about that. So it's Terry Nixon who uh, writes crime fiction as R.D. Nixon. She's written lots of things as Terry Nixon. Um, she writes fantasy and Cornish saga, historical saga books. But for us, she writes crime fiction. It's the third book in her series, the um, Clifford Mackenzie series, set in the Highlands of Scotland. And I love them all, and I particularly love this song because it's about the art world. It's called Bad Blood. It's coming out on Tuesday. Fabulous. Well, look, what a way to end it. Bad Blood, R.D. Nixon, look out for it. Look out for the email from the Hobeck newsletter. Don't forget to sign up to that. You get free books from it. Well, you get a free <laughs> a compendium of fabulous writing from our writers uh, from that. And, of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from. We'd be delighted if you did so. But uh, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Have a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.